0: I went back and forth, back and forth, what, what should the first sermon be like, and I, I wanted to give some background information, I also wanted to jump right into the text, so we're going to do both, and we're only going to end up covering really one verse of Matthew this morning, and I promise we will not only cover one verse of Matthew every week until we're done, uh, that would take some time, thank you Gianna, um, so we'll, we'll try to cover at least two verses a week, um, only joking, that was, that was just to see who, of, who among us was awake. And uh, if I could shock any of you to back into the land of the living, this joking, but Matthew chapter number one, and uh, this is going to be a background, uh, a background to the book of Matthew. It's going to be an introduction to the book of Matthew and uh, hold on because this information will be useful all the while as we study the book together. And I am very excited about beginning this morning. And as we do that, let me pray. ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, this is your word. Lord Jesus, this is your gospel. This this is not just about you, God. Uh, The good news really is you. Um, You are the king. You have declared and brought your kingdom. You have accomplished the work necessary for many to enter the kingdom and It's not different than you. It's not just something that you have done. It's it's part of your eternal plan. It's part of your character. have mercy on people, uh, some of which are in this room. Lord, we have as gathered as your body, as your church, we have received your mercy. We have received uh, the graciousness of you as our king. Uh, We have entered by grace through faith, your kingdom. And uh, as we look at this, Gospel record, the Gospel of Matthew, we want to see you lifted up in the Scriptures because they declare you, as do the rest. So help us this morning, even as we cover some some background information, some introductory material, help us to hunger and thirst for your Word and to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that we find in it. Lord, bless this time. Help us as we study. Lord, it's for your glory. May it not be for just our own benefit. May it not be for the building up of our minds for earthly reasons, but rather uh, to build our minds up and to fill it with your word for the kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, by the early second century, uh, the four gospel records that we have in Scripture were widely available and they were used in the church and to differentiate between them in their reading as they were passed around, they became known simply by their author, or their human author, I should say. Uh, it was according to or from uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four evangelists, as they're sometimes known, uh, didn't have as their intention to write down four different stories. They didn't have as their intention to write down four different gospels. But they also didn't give carbon copies of each other when they were writing. Rather, by divine inspiration, the Lord ordained that the the four gospel records would have different emphasis, different themes, different highlights, different amounts of information. Uh, The shortest, and most likely the first one written, is the Gospel of Mark. That gives the most succinct and to-the-point record of Jesus' life and ministry. Mark focuses on Jesus as the humble servant, who, of course, we know became the suffering servant predicted in the Old Testament. Then you have Luke. Uh, Luke is the Gentile doctor. He gives a a narrative that seems to focus on the unique but true humanity of Jesus Christ, beginning with the most detailed account of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2 is the most famous birth story of Jesus that we read every year at Christmas or Advent. John, which is the the final, perhaps the most uh, profound one of the gospel records when it comes to theological themes, he portrays Jesus as the Son of God, uh, or the Word of God, God in flesh, who came to give eternal life. Now Matthew, whose gospel winds up first in all the lists and the compilations of the books of the New Testament, has his own theme and his own emphasis like the other three, Matthew presents Jesus as the promised coming Messiah and the Redeemer of his people. Uh, He is uh, presented as the fulfillment of a multitude of prophecies from the Old Testament. Matthew presents Jesus, perhaps most pointedly, as the promised King of Israel. the, The King of kings who would bring the promised messianic kingdom to life on earth. So today we're going to take kind of like a 20,000-foot view of Matthew, kind of a flyover background of this gospel record. Uh, we're going to see the structure of how the book kind of fits together as we study through it, and then we'll see the big picture of the theme of Matthew. That's how we'll end this morning. Um, now, starting next week, we'll fly down from that 20,000-foot view and get a little closer to um, some weeks we'll, we'll land the plane and walk around and, in the text and get really, really close where the emphasis demands it. And uh, if you ask me, how many weeks are we going to be in Matthew? I'm not going to give you a prediction because that's what it would be at this point. And uh, that's because of two things. I'm not a prophet, and I can't say exactly where the Lord will lead us to focus on in Matthew. And two, I don't want to get in trouble if I go slower than I told you I was going to go. So I'm not going to give myself any limits here. Um, without further ado... Let's take a look at some of the big picture items. If you have your outline handout this morning, you'll see, uh, firstly, Matthew, the author. I want to look a little bit at Matthew himself because he is the one that we believe wrote this gospel record under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Now, like the other gospel records, there's nothing that's actually in the text per se that says that Matthew wrote this. Rather, the copies that were passed around uh, amongst the Christians and churches circulated with the inscription, according to Matthew, at the beginning of it. And that's probably how you have it written in your printed Bible as well. The, the, the first heading is probably something like, the gospel according to Matthew. Now, it's not a gospel about Matthew, and it's not a gospel that originates with Matthew. It's a divinely inspired record of Matthew's retelling of the story of Jesus. Now, at the onset, I have to say that there are some who, for whatever reason, many reasons, we won't get into, uh, maybe a couple of them, but they don't believe that Matthew the apostle actually wrote this gospel record. That's not a hill to die on, necessarily. If you meet somebody that believes that, you don't need to get in a fist fight over it, okay? Uh, But you should be aware, at least, Uh, that it was unanimously believed among the early church and for many centuries that Matthew was the author of this gospel record. And Matthew is an interesting character as a a disciple, as an apostle, as a person. In fact, he's so interesting that probably if the book wasn't written by him, it wouldn't make a lot of sense uh, for someone to falsely attribute the authorship to him. Matthew, Mark, Luke... uh, They all mention a man named Matthew in the list of the 12 disciples. And this, of course, is the Matthew that became identified with the author of this book. There's a little bit of confusion about his name, though. And I want to look at a couple scriptures. Firstly, uh, Mark chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, uh, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Again, in Luke chapter 5, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So we have both Luke and Mark recording that Jesus called a man named Levi as a disciple, a man who was a tax gatherer, who was sitting at the tax booth. Interestingly enough, though, however, when, when Mark and Luke get to their list of disciples, the name Levi Uh, is missing. Look at Luke's uh, instance of this. Luke 6, beginning in verse 13. When the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, and Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So in this list, that man, Levi, the tax collector, is missing, at least by name. Look at Matthew's version of this list as well. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, these two lists are very close in structure. All the names are basically the same, but there's one piece of information that Matthew's gospel includes that Luke and Mark do not. It identifies Matthew as a tax collector. So, apparently, Levi, who Jesus called is recorded in Luke and Mark, becomes Matthew as listed in the role of the disciples. Now, there are a lot of speculative reasons as to why that might be. And uh, I won't go into all detail about all of them. There's varying opinions. Again, it's not necessarily a hill to die on. Um, Some would say it's an error or a proof that the New Testament record is inaccurate. Some would say that Matthew wrote down his gospel record and then tried to insert himself into the gospel records where he didn't belong. But then the other copies of the gospel followed his lead. I don't know. One explanation I think is possible and is really quite interesting um, is there's a reason to believe that the reason why Matthew is also known as Levi is because he possibly came from the tribe of Levi and he may have gained that nickname. So Matthew the Levite uh, may have been known to some by just the nickname Levi while his real name was Matthew. Again, this isn't scriptural information, but it might explain why Matthew had such a, a profound knowledge of the Old Testament, as we'll see in his gospel record. Now, we're going to cover this text in detail as we study through the book, but let's take a look briefly at Matthew's record of his own call by Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. As Matthew recounts his own call to follow Jesus, he recounts it in the most humble of ways. Because the profession that he was called out of was questionable at best in that day. And at worst, it was despised by the Jewish culture. The publicans, or tax collectors, basically had two major roles. They would collect taxes on goods that were moving from place to place, like a tariff, And they would collect taxes on land and possessions. Taxes in the Roman-controlled regions was a lucrative business, and it was the epitome of a top-down oppressive institution. Now, this is not a discussion on taxes in general. I'm just talking about taxes in Matthew's day. It was so lucrative that the wealthy individuals and officials would actually purchase the right to be a tax collector. Imagine that, buying your job because it was such a lucrative job. A publican was charged with levying a fixed tax rate on all of a certain region for a period of five years, so they had a term. But there was a catch to this. Uh, The catch was that whatever amount they could collect above the government tax, it could be kept for profit. And to back that up, they had the Roman government and its army at their behest in collecting these taxes. So as long as everyone was in on this scheme, then they could essentially charge as much as possible. Now, these publicans would then hire out the actual task of ta- collecting taxes, and uh, that's what Matthew is named as. He would have been sort of serving under one of these publicans. He wouldn't himself have purchased that right. He would have been working working. For one of these, uh, you know, big dogs in the tax collecting business, but but uh, these tax collectors, because of the corruption and the the tax of the tax system in general, were also seen as traitors because they could play the same inflation game as the bigger guys, only in smaller quantities. So you had kind of a multi-tiered scam system going on, and that's what Matthew was taking part in. That was his profession. So for Matthew to identify himself as one sitting at the tax booth, he was identifying himself as one who would have been despised in his day by his fellow Israelites. Yet here's Jesus calling him to be a follower. And he follows. The traitor becomes a follower. He even strengthens the testimony of his own self-deprecation by giving the following account of his call. Uh, Matt read this earlier in our service, but we'll read it again. Right after the the story or the, the account of Matthew's call, he says this, As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As we will see in Matthew's gospel record, the Pharisees were well adept at picking out all the ways that Jesus broke their tradition and expectations, and here was a major taboo. Not only was Jesus seen with these sinners, uh, these tax collectors, he was reclined at the table with them. Fellowship with these? The scum of society? Of course, Jesus goes on to teach exactly why he was doing this, and we will study that story sometime from now. Uh, But what does this say about Matthew? Matthew. What does this say about his position as a disciple, his, his own view of his call? Uh, well, he views it as a call of grace, not something that he had earned, not something that he should have been chosen for. He views his own call to discipleship as an anecdote of the entire ministry of Jesus who came to save and to call sinners. Like a doctor who does not need to heal the sick, so Jesus came to save not the righteous, but sinners. And Matthew identifies himself with that group, the group that needs saving. That's the group that I identify myself with as well, and uh, all of us would be wise in doing that because Jesus didn't come for those who don't need any help. So that's a little bit about Matthew, the author. Now, let's look a bit of, a little bit about the book itself. Let's get some background information. I don't want to bore you with any uh, too deep and you know minute details, but some things are interesting and important. Um there's a little bit of a disagreement about when the Gospel of Matthew was written. Again, not a hill to die on, not a not a fist fight argument. You know don't, don't need to you know beat people down if they disagree on this issue. Um, but one issue, really comes into this, and it's a major event in history. And I want to look at another passage in Matthew to get to it. Matthew 24, uh, starting in verse number one, says Jesus left the temple and was going away. his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, this, these verses begin a discourse in Matthew, a teaching section in Matthew that's both fascinating and also daunting. It's a, it's a discourse which deals with eschatology, the second coming of Christ. It's a section which I'm glad is toward the end of the book because it gives me a while to prepare for it. Uh, but nevertheless, at the beginning of this, Jesus makes a claim. As he and his disciples were leaving the temple, they they got a distance away. Uh, Some of them had turned around and they said to Jesus, Jesus, do you see how majestic this place is? And it would have been majestic. We won't say a lot here, but Herod's temple, which is what they were looking at, it was a marvel of building and engineering. It it would have been today as well. Uh, It was an absolute marvel of that day. It was majestic to look at. The temple complex, think of this, the temple complex took up 35 acres of land. The stones used in construction would have been weighed in the millions of pounds. So Jesus turns around and he looks at this enormous structure with these, uh, with these monumental, literally, stones. And he says to his disciples, yeah, I see that. Uh, by the way, there's coming a time where not one of these stones are going to be left upon each other. They're they're all going to be torn down. Of course, his disciples would have been... They would have been awestruck, taken back. Their jaws would have dropped at that statement. They couldn't imagine how something like this would happen. But regardless, Jesus makes a prediction that 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 temple was going to be destroyed. And interestingly enough, it was destroyed. Uh, In 70 AD, at the end of the Jewish revolt... Under the leader of the Roman emperor Vespasian, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed, including, including Herod's remarkable temple complex. And this becomes kind of an issue about when the Gospel of Matthew was written, because if it was written after that time then some would argue that, well, Matthew simply took a historical event that happened and he kind of wove it into Jesus' teaching, maybe embellished a little bit to make it look like Jesus could predict the future. However, if it was written before that time, as well as Mark, who also records this prediction, that means that they were actually recording the words of Jesus as a prophecy. Now, for this and several other reasons that we won't get into this, morning, if you want to have a long and lengthy discussion, you can come up to my office after church and we'll go through all the boring details. But I believe Matthew wrote his gospel shortly after Mark's gospel, both of which were probably in the the middle of the 60s AD, because I do believe Jesus actually made this prediction and I believe it came true. Um, Now, what was going on during that time? In the 60s, and of the years to follow, there was an incredible tension between Jews and Christians. The Jewish leadership despised this upstart sect known as the Christians. In fact, they would even go so far as to come up with a a piece of liturgy or a saying that was in their synagogue services that was denouncing Christians as heretics and that they were to be done away with altogether. Now, that's important to know because as Matthew writes his gospel record, it's the most Jewish gospel record that we have. Uh, there are a lot of Hebrew idioms and Hebrew sayings that Matthew uses, more than the other authors. Uh, there, are, there are some Hebrew and Aramaic words in terms that, that remain untranslated. Uh, Matthew was writing, it seems at least, to Jewish believers or potential Jewish believers. He gives a very respectful treatment of the Old Covenant, but he also shows Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Most people believe Matthew wrote the book in a in the place of Syrian Antioch, and that was an interesting place because it was full of both Jews and Gentiles, which makes sense of Matthew's writing to a very Jewish audience while also including hints and teachings that show the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus' gospel is not just for the ethnic Jews, but also for all who believe. So that's a little bit of background about the writing of Matthew. We'll move on quickly. Now, what is the structure? As we look through the book of Matthew, uh, what is what is kind of the basic way that the book is laid out? There's a couple ways we could look at it. Um, the way that I've chosen to think about this, uh, I put it in the outline here in the in the handout. And this is kind of the way I'm, not just me, but a lot of people think and kind of pick apart Matthew into sections, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, It makes sense to divide it up into these seven sections that you see. If you have your outline, you see that chapter one uh, through the end of chapter two is an introduction, basically. And then you have five major sections, all of these five sections uh, have different teaching discourses or, or bulk sections of Jesus' teaching. Um, you can see those there. Um, they all center around this idea of the kingdom, but they're divided up in that way. And then at the end of the book, from the chapter 26 through the end, we see kind of the culmination. And that's, of course, the passion, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As as far as these five middle sections, though, each of these discourses have a a section of narrative or of just storytelling that goes with it, a section of narrative that lays the foundation for why Jesus might have chosen to teach on a particular subject. And each one of these sections end with a phrase like this. We're going to see these as we go through Matthew. So take a look at this. For instance, when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching. Another one, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there. Another one, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Uh, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. And when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. uh, So these are examples of, at the end of each one of these sections, interestingly enough, uh, Matthew records it in the same way. So a lot of people think Matthew is actually structuring his gospel based on these teaching sections by Jesus. Um, again, it's it's just a way to view the book. I think it's interesting, though, and that's kind of how we're going to view it as we go through. And when we get to the end, um, instead of just being kind of an epilogue or a conclusion, the last few chapters are really the climax as Jesus unfolds his teaching, he's moving toward his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, some people believe that the five discourses are in Matthew's mind kind of meant to mimic or mirror the five books of Moses. And then they're followed by this grand finale of Jesus' death and resurrection, which puts a stamp on this new covenant that is both unla- or outlaid and bought by Christ. So that's kind of a way we'll look at Matthew as we go through it. Then finally, I want to see the theme. What is Matthew's theme? We talked about uh, Mark having a theme of Jesus Christ as a servant, Luke having uh, the theme of Jesus Christ as the son of man, John's theme is Jesus as the son of God or the word of God. What is Matthew's theme? Well, Matthew sees Jesus Christ as the king, uh, and along with that, the major theme of Matthew's gospel is a theme of fulfillment. Fulfillment. Fulfillment of Old Testament scripture in the life and ministry of Jesus. And specifically, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of a Messianic king. In Matthew's gospel record, there are no less than 23 instances where Jesus directly fulfills these kind of Old Testament prophecies. Matthew is actually known for his very specific references to fulfillment, which he introduces with the phrase, This took place to fulfill. Let me give you a few examples of that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Another one, Matthew 2 15. Uh, They remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Another one, Matthew 2.17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew 4.14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Uh, Matthew 12.17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, these are all examples without context, I know. And we're going to see them in depth in the days to come. But the idea here is that Matthew cannot help but stress just how pointed and obvious it is that Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. It's as if he's writing to his his fellow uh, Jewish people and saying, how can you not see this? And perhaps most pointedly is the way that Matthew opens up the gospel record, which finally brings us to the place where we can read Matthew 1 verse number one. And here's where we will begin. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this opens up the genealogy section of Matthew. We'll cover that section next week. But I wanted to start here to kind of dip our toes into Matthew this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, There's a lot packed into that verse. In a few minutes' time, uh, I want to try to bring out some of the significance. So let's go in order. First, uh, the book of the genealogy. At first glance, it seems like Matthew is just introducing this this, uh, record of of Jesus' lineage uh, that he's about to record in the next 16 verses, But the title, the book of the genealogy, is a special title. Um, In Greek, the word is Genesis. Does that sound familiar? Uh, We have something else in the scripture called Genesis, don't we? Uh, It's the same word that became the title of the first book of Moses. The book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis means that which comes into being, or the beginning of things, or the origination of things. Uh, Actually, In the book of Genesis, in both chapters 2 and 5, we have this same phrase, the book of the generations or the book of the genealogy. And I think, I'm not alone in thinking this, but I believe that by beginning his writing this way, Matthew is actually connecting the story of Jesus that he's about to tell with the story, the whole story of the Old Testament. Of course, we know it is connected, but Matthew connects it in a very special way. If Genesis is a book of beginnings, then this gospel is a story of a new beginning. If Genesis began the old covenant, which was until that point, then the gospel is the beginning of a new covenant and a better covenant that is proclaimed, inaugurated, and purchased by the main character of this book, Jesus Christ. Again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's possibly even a connection of the structure of Matthew to the books of Moses. Five books of Moses, and in Matthew there are five main sections of Jesus' teaching. I don't think it's a coincidence. I, I think Matthew really has a very masterful plan as he sets Jesus forth with the rest of the New Testament as a new and better Moses. We go on in the verse. Excuse me. We go on in the verse, and we see that Matthew records Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, in Luke's genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam again, showing that Jesus is the son of man. Uh, John doesn't record a genealogy; Uh, he's simply stating, I think that Jesus was from the beginning. In fact, he says that he was with God and he was God. Uh, Mark has no genealogy. Some make a connection there that if Mark is saying Jesus is the servant, well, a servant doesn't really need a a lineage to be recorded. But Matthew makes these two highlights, son of David, son of Abraham. What's the significance there? David, of course, was the pinnacle, uh, the the poster child, if we could say it that way, of the kings of Israel's history. Uh, David's reign was one of primarily peace, and prosperity. Uh, David was seen and recorded as a man after God's own heart. Uh, more importantly, perhaps, though, is that God made a covenant with David that would establish his throne forever. In other words, his descendants would be the rulers of God's people forever. And what about Abraham? God also made a covenant with Abraham, didn't he? Uh, a covenant with Abraham's family that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by his seed. Now think about this for a minute. Had these things been fulfilled? Uh, consider God's people at this time. The king over Israel was just a puppet king. He was a half Jew who was appointed by Rome to kind of keep the peace in this conquered land. And what about Abraham's covenant? Had, had all the nations of the earth been blessed? Well, maybe, but really, Israel's history had fallen short in that regard. While they had periods of of peace and fame and fortune, there were more lows than there were highs. They had been captives, slaves. Their cities had been burned. And now, while they were in their land, physically, they were conquered yet again. Do you see what Matthew is doing? He is saying to his audience, his family, his fellow Jews, he's saying, do you remember the promise to David? Do you remember the promise to Abraham? Here is the one who fulfills that. Jesus Christ, that is Jesus the Messiah. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the messianic king of God's people who ushers in this kingdom, and he is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. And while Matthew's gospel focuses a lot on God's promise to Israel, all through it there are hints of Abraham's promise, the all-nations view of the covenant. This is most remarkably noted at the end of the book, where Jesus calls his followers, his disciples, to make disciples of all nations. So Matthew presents Jesus, king of Israel, as the son of David. But as the son of Abraham, his kingdom extends into all who will follow in all the nations. We'll see in the coming weeks that Matthew's gospel is consumed with the glory of this king and his kingdom. And I hope that we, as Ira Baptist Church, will catch the same passion and the same vision as we study this book in the days to come. We'll end there for this morning. If I keep going, we'll be here far beyond lunchtime. So tune in later for further update. Um, look forward to studying this book together as a body. Let's pray. Lord, there's been a lot of information running in my mind. Hopefully some of that made it through in words, Lord. But mostly I pray that we would see as as Matthew starts this record, as you inspired him to, to record Jesus as this fulfillment, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, you are king. Yes, you fall in the line of David's family. Yes, you fall in the line of Abraham's seed. You are the rightful king by human implications, but you are king of kings. And we know, Jesus, that in you, all the nations of the earth are blessed as this gospel of the kingdom has spread from a little kingdom in Palestine, to every continent of the globe. Jesus, you are king over this earth. You are king of all kings. May we see you as this promised king. May we see you of this as this fulfillment of the old covenant. May we see this gospel of your kingdom as having direct implication on our life. May we see your teaching, as recorded in this book, as true, uh, as coming directly from you, directly from God, bearing with it the full weight, the word of God. May we stand in both awe and wonder of you, O Lord, as we view Matthew's gospel. May we stand in awe and wonder of you, O Lord, each day as we follow you. And may we be sparked by this gospel, to spread it, even in our day, to send it forth. Jesus is the king. In him there is blessing. In his gospel there is forgiveness. There is peace. There is a relationship to be had with this king of all. We thank you, Lord. We give you glory. We pray this in your name. Jesus' name, amen.